0: just joining us we're going through the gospel of John together uh, sort of section by section we'll finish up uh, just in early September Uh, there the end is in sight Uh, do not fear we will be done with John soon but not yet Uh, today we're looking at John chapter 15 we're going to be reading verses 18 through 16 4 Uh, so with that in mind Christian hear the word of the Lord to us Uh, this is Jesus speaking John chapter 15 starting in verse 18 if the world hates you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But... All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray. Holy Spirit, even now, would you be here as we study your word. Uh, Father, would you be glorified in Jesus? Would we keep our eyes on you and your word? Uh, Father, would you give us strength for this hour? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we jump into this uh, sermon about what it means to not be of this world, I have a question for you. Uh, It's really simple, but you may have to think about it a little bit. Um, Are you the kind of person that wants the good news first or the bad news first? You know, what kind of person are you? Do you want the good news first or do you want the bad? You know when your spouse comes to you or your friend or your mom, you know, or your, uh, you know, uh, boss or your coworker, Do you want the good news or the bad news? Anyone here want the, the good news first? Well, you're doing it all wrong, okay? So there's only one way of living. I can tell you all about it. You're at a church. Welcome. There's only one way of living, and that way is you want the bad news first then we can get to the good news, okay? So that's my my bold suggestion to you this morning, right? We want the bad news first, and then we can focus on all of the good news, right? Uh, So this passage this morning is going to give us, unfortunately, some bad news, and then also some good news, right? But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the bad news and get that out of the way, and then we're going to look at the good news, okay? All right, so does anyone want to take a guess at what the bad news is? The bad news, according to this passage... Is you and I, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've been marked by Him, right? If you are indwelled by His Holy Spirit through faith in Christ alone, right? If you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? If you are a believer in Christ, here's the bad news. You and I, we are not of the world. That's the bad news. All right, anybody want to take a guess at to what the good news is? You and I, if we are marked by Jesus Christ, we have faith in Christ alone. What's the good news? We're not of this world, (laughs) right? The bad news is you, Christian, are not of the world. And the good news, Christian, is you are not of this world, right? And really, there's only one way uh, to answer that question. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? And I want to try to convince you that we should focus on the bad news and then run to the good news. So that's my big, bold suggestion. And the news today that's both good and bad is that you and I, Christian, we are not of this world. So let's go and try to understand this passage just as well as we can. So if you look down at John chapter 15, Jesus is going to say a bunch of challenging things that sound to us like bad news. Like it's going to say that you and I, Christian, we're going to be hated. And if Jesus is persecuted, then we should anticipate and be ready to be persecuted. But to really understand what's going on in the Bible, uh, you have to look at sort of the verse itself if you want to study the Bible, right? If you're new to the Bible, If you're a Christian, this is how you read the Bible. You go off of the sentence, you know, you try to study the sentence or the words in the sentence. And then to understand that sentence, you've got to expand out to the paragraph or, you know, the chapter. But then the step that you and I also need to understand, and this is why study Bibles and things like the church are helpful and Bible teachers, is not only do we study the passage in its immediate context, we then need to move out and look at the whole section of the book. And then we've got to look at the book itself and what it teaches. Think of it as sort of like concentric circles that sort of work its way out. And the reason I mention that is because for you and I to understand as best as we can what Jesus is saying in these verses, we've got to remember that this is coming from a certain section. We're going to look at individual sentences, but we're going to move out to the section of the Gospel of John. And this is sort of undisputed by most Bible scholars. This isn't sort of my take on it. But you can really look at the Gospel of John, which we've been reading for a long time, and the outline breaks down pretty simply. John 1 through 12 is very simple. That is the story of Jesus' ministry, right? He goes around, he feeds 5,000, he says a lot of the I am statements, he performs a lot of miracles. Really, that's John chapter 1 through 12. It's sort of what you think of when you think of the Gospels. But at John 13, there's a whole different section. And that's John 13 through 17. And that is called the upper room discourse. And discourse just means a discussion, right? And guess where this discussion is happening? Well, if you know the Bible, it's in that upper room where Jesus takes communion for the first time. But what you may not know is that John 13 through 17 is devoted to that entire night. All of those chapters deal just with what Jesus says to his disciples on the night when he's betrayed. And then, of course, John 18 through 21 finishes up with the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's pretty much a basic outline of John. Now, the reason I I mention that to you is to understand this passage. We've got to see it in the broader discussion of the upper room discourse. So if you go to John 13, where Jesus starts off this discussion, Jesus does something very famous. Uh, Anyone know what he does? It includes a towel and some rank smelling feet. Anyone remember what goes on? The upper room discourse begins with Jesus wrapping a towel around his waist and he washes the feet of his disciples. It's an act so humiliating that they would have never done it to each other. They would have never offered to do it to Jesus. And this was actually lowly, even for a servant. Even if you had a personal servant, this would be seen as a demeaning thing to do. And yet Jesus is willing to stoop down and humble himself to demonstrate his love for his disciples. And Jesus says right there in John chapter 13, he says, I have given you an example. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, but I leave you an example. You see, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm your master, and you are really like my servants, right? I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a undersell of the relationship between God in human form and his followers, right? He is the master, but he's so much more. But if Jesus is willing to stoop to wash his disciples' smelly feet, how much more should they love and support one another? How much more should Christians go out of their way to defer to one another, to care for one another in ways that may actually strike you as deeply humiliating and humbling? Jesus says, I leave you an example. And we love that, right? And of course, Jesus goes on and he says even more amazing things in this passage, right? He talks about how he's going to give them a new commandment that the believers are supposed to love one another. Jesus goes on and he he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place in heaven for you. He says, don't fear because when I leave, I'm going to send you the very Holy Spirit of God who's going to dwell with your spirit forever. Your spirit the Holy Spirit are united forever. Don't fear. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And then Jesus says beautiful things, like last week, how he says he is like this vine, and you and I, believer, we are like branches that get all of the energy and the sap, and we live and bear fruit because Christ dwells within us. Sounds like a lot of good news, right? We like all of that section, and we resonate with that, but then Jesus really changes the tone in verse 18, doesn't he? So in light of all this good news, all these beautiful promises, there is sort of like this undercurrent that also flows through the Upper Room Discourse. I mean, after all, in the Upper Room Discourse, who doesn't hear this Upper Room Discourse? Who leaves? Who's the branch that gets cut off and thrown into the fire? Who's one of those in Christ but who is never really of us? It was Judas. So even though Jesus is saying all of these beautiful things, we have to understand that there's this undercurrent of persecution and suffering, even for Jesus in this story. And so Jesus, out of love, now tells his disciples some very hard news. He gives us sort of the bad news, right? And what is it? In verse 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it ever hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Quite the tone change, isn't it? Of course, we have to understand what Jesus is warning them about, right? So I'm gonna give you sort of two reasons, uh, two bits of bad news, right? The first one is that the world is gonna hate us, Christian. Uh, and I don't mean that because they hate you like your shoe style collection or they, they hate your politics. What I mean by that is we have to embrace and understand as followers of Jesus Christ that no matter how winsome you and I are, no matter how many hours of you know, community service we do, no matter how generous we may be to the poor, there's always going to be something about our testimony for Jesus Christ that the world hates. And the sooner you and I come to grips with that, the better we're going to be able to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. You know, I'm not talking about being a jerk for Jesus, you know, that is not anywhere in the Bible, but what I am saying, Christian, is that you and I need to understand that we are not of this world, and because of that, we're always going to stick out. <laughs> we're always going to sort of smell in a different way. You know, that was, that's the analogy uh, Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. He says, you know, to some, we're going to smell like death, but to those appointed for eternal life, we're going to smell like life itself, Right? So for some of us, uh, we're going to experience that at at deeper levels, but every one of us need to understand that there is something about being marked by Jesus Christ that's going to make the world exist in opposition to us. Now, what is it that, you know, marks us as different? Well, there are a bunch of things that I could point to, but to me, when I think about what it means to be hated by the world, right? And when I, when I say the world, when John says the world, he doesn't mean like hated by the beautiful creation, right? Sometimes I think when you and I hear the world, we think of like Planet Earth, you know, that BBC show where like the British guys talk about how beautiful creation is. You know, anyone seen that show? That's not what John is talking about when he says the world. You know, in Greek, he calls it the cosmos. And what he means by that is probably the way you and I would say the word the system, You know what I mean? When we say, like, the system is rigged against you, right? Or we would say culture, like, you know, well, culture just says to do X, Y, and Z. That's probably more of what John is talking about, like the sinful structures of humanity that are opposed to God. That's the world, right? Uh, And so when he says the world hates Christians, that's what he's talking about. There's this evil, demonically influenced undercurrent in this world that is opposed to God. You know, another way John will talk about it is he'll say that, The gospel is kind of like light shining into the darkness, and how does the darkness feel about the light? It hates it and cannot stand the light because the light exposes it, and it exposes their evil deeds, right? So there's something about being Christian, right? Something about testifying and saying, we represent Jesus Christ that is going to make the world hate us. So what is it? Well, you know, is it our politics? Is it the way we talk? Is it our songs? Um, I don't think those are necessarily helpful, uh, to think that's what the world hates. I think this, this may be a more helpful way for you to understand it. Um, at least it helps me. And it, it's really, it's tapping really, really, really back into the long tradition of Christian thought, right? I, I want to stand in a long line of believers, you know. The church was not invented in 1990 or whatever, right? The church has been around for 2,000 years, and the church has been hated for 2,000 years. I mean, I've, I've been trying to find examples of the persecuted church, and you could pick any year of any, you know, any millennia, and there's always going to be Christians who are suffering. And so what I want to do, and I hope what you want to do, is you want to stand in line with the great tradition. What have Christians always, throughout time, in an unchanging way, clung to? You know, God's word, the truth, the trinity, mercy, justice. So if you look at the long tradition of Christian thought, and if you go way back, this is maybe the easiest way of seeing how you and I, Christian, are different than the world And it comes from a really interesting person named Evagrius Ponticus. What a name, right? I tried to name Oaks Evagrius Ponticus Jernigan, but that did not pass the wife. I'm just kidding. I don't hate my son. I love him, right? But I do like Evagrius. And he wrote around the 200s. And Evagrius is famous because he was one of the original desert fathers. He was one of those weird monks who started the monastery movement. And Evagrius, even though you probably don't know his name, has had an influence on you and on our culture, even outside the church. Because Evagrius, in his attempt to help believers put sin to death in their life, came up with a very helpful list of sins that you and I should be challenged to put to death. And remember, he's writing like 1,700 years ago. And you may know the list as The Seven Deadly Sins. And Evagrius, you know, there's no verse that says, here are the seven deadly sins. What Evagrius does is he reads scripture, and then he kind of categorizes the main ones. Here are the seven deadly sins in case you need a refresher. Remember, he's writing 1,700 years ago. Number one, lust. Do people still struggle with lust today? I think it's something like one in eight internet searches are pornographic in nature. All right, so lust, number one. Number two, gluttony. That's overeating, you know. Anyone been to Costco lately? Anyone ever been to Costco and thought to yourself, no, no, that's too many Cheez-Its. No, that would be gluttonous of me. No, no one's ever said that. No one has ever said that. You know why? Because we struggle with gluttony. You know, we want like the 10-pound bag of Cheez-Its, right? I have it in my house. Well, I I already ate them, but I, I did. I have the wrapper somewhere, right? Gluttony. Uh, Gluttony, you know, to them was not just overeating. It was just wanting everything luxurious, right? Um, So if they would say gluttony is not just wanting a bunch of food, it may may be like wanting a bunch of really nice food always. Wanting everything, you know, not just, you know, organic, but Oregon organic, right? They would say that was gluttony. It's wanting too much of nice things. It's an unhealthy um, uh, uh, desire, right? Another one would be greed. Aren't you glad none of us struggle with greed? good thing we outgrew that one a while ago, right? The next one is sloth. This is my favorite one. You know what sloth is? It's not the cute animal. What a what a poor what a poor name to name a cute animal. He just moves slow. He's just I don't you know. He's just a sloth. He just moves slow. Sloth though, for them sloth would not just be laziness. What they would really call it would be like more like melancholy. A a lack of a fire in your belly. You know, uh, it would be like the 25-year-old who doesn't want know what he wants to do with his life. He's just sort of bumming around with no real purpose in life, no real battle to fight. That person would be slothful, right? That's a classic sin. Christians should know that you're on a mission from God and what you do matters, whether you work for the ministry or whether you have a normal 9-to-5 job. Everything you do matters, right? Because no matter what you're doing, right, you're, a theology of work tells you that whatever you're doing God is honored because you can love your neighbor through your work, right? I mean, if you are, you know, let's just use it easy thing. You're a bus driver. You can do that work to the glory of God because the better and the more on time you are, the better people can depend on you and get where they need to go, especially the most vulnerable. So you may not think what you're doing matters to God, but everything you do in service of others matters because you are loving your neighbor through that thing, That's why every avenue matters. Next up, wrath. Do people still struggle with wrath today? Have you even been on the internet? I mean, have you read the comment section on any article ever? You could be like, the sky is blue. And people are like, no, how dare you oppress me? It's whatever color I want to say it is, right? I mean, people are so angry, envy. What's envy? You know, envy is not just seeing someone else's sock and thinking, well, those are cool socks. Envy is seeing someone's socks and being like, I want those, and I hate you that you have them. Right? That's envy. The evil eye, right, is what they would say in the ancient world, right? Hating the person for the good things that God gave them. And then, of course, the final and the ultimate sin is what? What's the biggest sin? Pride, right? All right, so if those are the classic sins of, that, of the Christian tradition, right? Now, what that would, so that would be your list of vices. You know? Do you, you know what a vice is? A vice is literally something that binds you, right? That's literally why they call it a vice, because it's got you by the grip, right? Internet pornography's got you, and you can't stop. Your greed has you, and it won't let you go, right? That's why it's called a vice, because you got to get out of it. So if those are the things that the classic Christian understanding of wrong is, what are the corresponding virtues? How do you combat lust? It's with chastity, self-control, right? How do you combat gluttony? Temperance, right? The Christian tradition honors fasting, right? It should be a regular practice. Why? Not because we worship food, but because we want to show that we control our urges. And the more you can control your urges, the better off you're going to be putting sin to death. How do you combat greed? Anybody want to take a guess? How do you, how do you combat greed? If you were really greedy, what should you do? Generosity. Generosity. That's what Evagrius would say. If you're greedy, you need to start giving things away to the point that it hurts. That's when you know you're really giving. Sloth? What do you combat sloth with? Diligence. Talk about an old word, right? Diligence. Wrath is combated by what? If you're really angry, what should you grow into? Anybody want to take a guess? Patience. Patience. Someone just got elbowed. Husbands, I apologize. That was not my intent. Envy, envy. If you resent the good things that God has given other people, how, do you, how are you and I supposed to combat envy? Oh, this is so beautiful. Gratitude. Gratitude. Uh, Evagrius will say if you struggle with envy, you should give gifts to that person in gratitude of what God has already given them. Give them even more. And how do you com- combat Pride humility, right? The humility of Christ, right? Don't make much of yourself. I mean, what in this world are you not told to be proud of? I mean, like, you're told to be proud of your toenails, you know what I mean? It's like, take everything you have about you, you should be proud of, you know? Well, the Christian tradition says, no, what? Don't make much of me, make much of Christ, right? The way up is actually the way down, right? Uh, Christian, when you and I are at our best, you know what we're really doing? Really mirrors that just point people to look to the Lord. I mean, that's you at your best, right? is just sort of like deflecting the attention onto Christ. I mean, the best thing any pastor has ever said was really just Christ speaking through that person, right? And if you worship the pastor or the speaker, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the voice of God, right? I mean, Christian, when you and I are at our best, we're humble, we're not proud. So the reason I'm going on, why is he going on about this? Well, the reason I mention all of this, friend, is because if you're a Christian Part of understanding why the world does not love us but that it hates us is because the classic understanding of what the the moral life is, the virtuous life, whatever you want to call it, the Christ-like life, that list of the seven things we should be developing and the seven things that we should be putting to death. Right now in the culture, in the world that you and I live in, those lists are reversed. Think about it this way. Uh, Ferdinand Mount is a Catholic who wrote a great book called Full Circle, and uh, he wrote this about how the classic virtues are now seen as bad things, and the classic bad things are now all heralded as wonderful. He says, coveting is now rebranded as retail therapy. Sloth is just you time. Lust is exploring your sexuality. Anger is just opening up about your real feelings. Vanity is looking good because you're worth it. Gluttony is the religion of foodies. I mean, go down that list and which one of those aren't celebrated. I think part of the reason why we are uh, hated by the world is because we value all of these really odd things that the world does not value. We value sexual chastity. We value temperance in the face of indulgence. We value generosity, not the accumulation of wealth. We value diligence. You know, that Protestant work ethic? Buddy, you better lean into that. We value patience, not anger. We value gratitude and humility. I mean, these are all things that the world finds abhorrent. You know, but that's not really the reason in this passage why Jesus says you and I are going to be hated. You know what Jesus says? I think that is part of it, right? But what Jesus says in verse 19 is the world is going to hate us, right there, verse 19. The world would love you as its own if you were, but because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I mean, what the Bible teaches, without blinking, is that you, Christian, are chosen by God. You are chosen. I mean, Paul in Ephesians 1 says, before the foundations of the world, you were predestined, for adoption as sons. You, Christian, are going to inherit everything. This world and its values, they're all fading away. They're all going away. But what's going to endure is the kingdom of God. And you, Christian, were chosen to receive the blessing. You are chosen to be beloved. You are a marked person. I mean, that's what baptism does, right? It marks you as beloved by God. Jesus chose you of all people to be the recipient of his grace. So we have an intimacy and a relationship with God that is not a source of pride, it's not a source of looking down on others. We have a relationship with the Lord. Yeah, you better wake up, right? We have a relationship with the Lord based on his election of us that deeply humbles us, but also assures us for all of eternity that he will never cast us aside. We'll never, ever have to worry. For all of eternity, we're chosen. You are marked. He'll never cast you aside. So the world hates our relationship with the Lord. It finds it abhorrent. And we don't despise the world. In fact, what we do is we plead with the world, the people of the world, to do what? To repent and become part of the family of God. This opportunity is for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. It's what the apostles preached. Uh, So, um, all that to say, when it comes to persecution, Christian, um, is this something that's just for, you know, the apostles? Are they the ones who are going to be persecuted? You know, I mean, all these apostles, all these guys in the room, they're all going to be martyred, right? Uh, Only John ends up not being physically martyred. He just ends up being exiled. Are we to expect being persecuted today? Well, Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will, uh, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, however, continue in the things you have learned since childhood, knowing from whom you have learned them. Uh, so all, all that to say, Paul seems to suggest that all of us, every one of us as believers is going to be persecuted on some level. And so, you know, uh, to be warned, right, Is we need to anticipate this. So now, what do we do with the persecuted church? This teaching? Well, I I know that we sense in America that the persecution is coming, and I think it is. You know, so I just want to be upfront with that. You know, I see you know all the potential for the persecution of the gospel preaching church is all there. Like in my mind, I think of it as like the train track has already been laid; just no one's taken the train down the train track yet, right? But it's all there, right? We all see it. We all feel it, right? And maybe we're even feeling it this week. But we can't, uh, we shouldn't compare what we experience in America with what real persecution is around the world. And I'm not downplaying what we're experiencing, but we need to realize what actual persecution of the Christian church looks like, right? So um, I'm sure many of you know the ministry Voice of the Martyrs. Anyone ever worked with Voice of the Martyrs or heard of that? It's a nonprofit. They track uh, the persecuted church. And what you may not know is tomorrow is their annual day of the Christian martyr. Every year, they do a, a whole day. They have all this stuff on YouTube you can watch tomorrow that's going to come out live in honor of Christians who are persecuted around the world. And I know this may sound like in a different world, but this is going on today. And the day that, tomorrow, they're going to do it in honor of a pastor named Jean-Paul Sankagui. And Jean-Paul Sankagui planted a church in a Muslim neighborhood in the country of Central African Republic. Did, any, I just wanted to, did anyone know that was a country? I've never heard of Central African Republic. I had to Google it to make sure that that was actually a country. I didn't know that was a country until this week. Uh, Pastor Jean, in the country of Central African Republic, planted a church in 1993. Uh, In 2017, just a few years ago, three years ago, uh, radical Islamists shot him to death outside of his church and then proceeded to burn his house in the church down. Five other pastors were also murdered a few weeks later. And Pastor Jean-Paul is survived by his wife, Mary, the pastor's wife, Mary. He had 11 children, and he is survived by 17 grandkids. That was just three years ago. Uh, that may seem really far away, but um, this is not hyper, uh, hyperbole when I say this, but the Christians are the most persecuted people group in the world. And I'm not saying that as a pastor. I'm saying that as an actual statistic, no people group is more persecuted than Christians are. Now, you and I, we're not persecuted like that in America, but we have to understand that we are one body in Christ. Another ministry called Open Doors Ministry, they also track the persecuted church. Open Doors, just in their 2020 uh, summary of the persecuted church, cite that there are 260 million Christians living in countries of high levels of persecution. High levels of persecution go on for 260 million Christians. Uh, In 2019, 2,983 Christians were killed specifically for their faith. I mean, none of us would have known Pastor Jean-Paul's name unless, you know, Voice of the Martyrs had let us know that was his name. But I mean, do you think you could memorize all 2,983 of those Christians' names? I mean, just put that into perspective. 3,000 of our brothers and sisters were put to death for Christ. 9,488 churches were attacked. And then 3,711 believers were detained without trial and imprisoned. And that was all just last year. It's all just in 2019. And if that doesn't feel close enough, remember that um, one of our own, you know, you know, our denominations like, you know, a particle of a nose hair of the body of Christ. Our tiny little speck. Our denomination had one of our own pastors get imprisoned prison for over two years in Turkey. Why? Because his church of 30 people dared to preach the gospel. And he was only miraculously released because of a miracle in the working of God through our government. Anybody remember Andrew Brunson? You can read his story even now. All that to say, um, I mentioned the persecuted church really, I guess, for this reason. One, because I want you to know about it. Um, I'm not downplaying the coming persecution if it does. What I am saying is we need to put our suffering into perspective. The second reason I mention it is because we need to learn from the persecuted church. And what we most need to learn from them is if you talk to Christians in areas where they are persecuted, um, when you ask them, how can we help you? Or how can we pray for you? Do you know what they ask for? Overwhelmingly, Christians in persecuted countries, they ask you to pray for one thing, strength and endurance. You know what they don't ask for? Avoidance. They don't really say, well, please make it stop. What they say is, may I be faithful to the end. Give me endurance until the end. I mean, think about it this way. I mean, um, that is so radically different than how we think about persecution, isn't it? I mean, when you and I think about the coming persecution, what do we pray for? Oh, God, please don't let it come. But the persecuted church doesn't pray like that. What do they pray for? God, give me the strength to endure. May I be an overcomer. May I be faithful to the end. I mean, that is such a radical shift in thinking that we have got to learn that from the persecuted church. I mean, think about it this way. If you were a soccer coach, okay? I never played soccer, so I don't really understand soccer. I've never played soccer. I was never on a soccer team. But in watching the World Cup every now and then, I know that there's such a thing as a penalty kick, right? Right? And a penalty kick happens after the game is over, if it's tied, right? And you get sort of five kicks. It's very stressful. Anyone here ever had to kick a penalty kick? Anyone? No one? No one plays? Oh, I'm so thankful I'm not alone in not understanding soccer. Well, in soccer, after the game is over, if it's tied, you know, the team has to do penalty kicks, which is one person has to kick into the goal, and they go back and forth until someone gets the best out of five, right? It's very stressful. Now, if you were a coach, right, and you have your team... Sitting on the bench, and you've got this like five-star recruit that is like specifically designed by God with a left foot that is designed by God to kick penalty kicks. And you're like, "Hey, hey, buddy, we're, it, the game is almost over. It's tied. I have this feeling that you should be ready to have to kick your penalty kicks. But here's the good news: you are made to do this. Now, imagine you go to that person, and they're all, you know, they're sweating, <laughs> they're all nervous. And they're like, oh, please, Lord, may, it, may we just win the game. I don't want to have to go out there and kick penalty kicks. Is that the guy you would want to send out into the game? What would you say? What would any self-respecting coach say? But you got to change your whole, you, you should want to get out there. You are designed by God. You were called for such a time as this, get out there and own that penalty kick. You were called for this time. Get ready. Don't ask the Lord to avoid it. Ask for the ability To step up to the challenge. That's what a coach would want out of any player, right? Christian, should it be any different for us? I mean, I see so many Christians. We walk around like we're defeated. Like Jesus hasn't already won the victory. (laughs) That Christ hasn't already defeated the rulers and the principalities. That Satan, his head hasn't already been crushed. I mean, Jesus is going to win. He already has. And he has told us what? We should anticipate persecution. And you, Christian, have been called to this life and this community for such a time as this. You are designed by God. His Holy Spirit dwells within you. You can face this. We can do this together. The bad news is we're going to be persecuted and hated. But the good news is we're not of this world. Which means that you and I are called by God to face whatever is coming our way. And as much as that's scary, I want to just finish with just a couple of points of good news. Uh, Friends, the good news is that we're not of this world. We don't belong to it. We don't share its values. What they call sin, we, we call righteousness. What they call righteousness, we call sin, right? We're not of this world. We don't share its fate or its values. But the beautiful thing is that there is the church. I mean, Jesus holds out hope. He says in verse 20 that there will be some who keep his word. I mean, the reason you and I have hope is because Jesus' church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, Jesus is going to win. People are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. He has a people group that he indwells, that it is going to bear fruit. I mean, Jesus is going to win, and we get to be a part of that. You are chosen. You are marked. And then, of course, Jesus, in this passage, what he says primarily, the reason for hope is right there in verse 26 and following. It's because the work of the triune God is at work in this world. God the Father is sending the Spirit because of the work of the Son. Jesus says, you should have hope because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. No matter what you and I face, we're never really going to be alone. We're never going to be alone because the Holy Spirit is with us. So, let me just, I guess, ask a question. Are you a good news first person or do you want the bad news first? You know the bad news first, we want the good news. If I haven't already convinced you, maybe this would help. We should want the bad news first always and then the good news. You know why? Because the bad news is light and it is momentary. But the good news of the gospel is an eternal weight of glory. Friends, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, by your spirit, can strengthen us for whatever we're facing. Uh, Lord, we lift up to you the brothers and the sisters and the children of the persecuted church. Lord, have mercy on them. Lord, strengthen them, deliver them through your miraculous power as you did Andrew Brunson. Uh, Lord, uh, keep them faithful to the end and help us to learn from them. In Christ's name, we